0: As climate change continues to alter our world and alter our place in our world, it's an ever greater challenge for scientists, for politicians, for industry leaders. But what about for artists, writers and performers? Like all of us, they're affected by climate change, but how have their responses to it made a difference? And how can their responses to it make a greater difference in the future? Welcome to the first of four discussions of different aspects of cultural responses to our changing climate. It's hoped that these mediating change discussions will help to build a framework for thinking about and improving these responses, making them more engaging, more wide-reaching. And, this being the first, we're going to start by looking at how we got to where we are now, at the recent history of using arts and culture to engage with climate change. What's been effective, what hasn't, what's raised awareness and what, if anything, has changed policy, practice and behaviour. Now, just before we hear from the first of our panel, it is worth stressing, that this is not any kind of top-down guide or set of rules for doing this. It's, it's not designed to make campaigning points or get across facts about best practice. The whole idea is to create some thinking space where art practitioners and researchers can make more sense of the broader cultural dimensions of climate change and why it's something that affects our entire planet, our entire species, calls for new kinds of artistic responses new ways of evaluating them and arguably new ways of evaluating what it is to be human. Now there is lots more I could say but I'm going to leave the bulk of the talking to our panel. We have a social scientist, an academic in the field of environment and the arts, a choreographer and a geographer and we're going to start with a science And Diana Liverman, Professor of Geography and Development and Co-Director of the Institute of the Environment at the University of Arizona. She's been working on climate change throughout her career as an environmental social scientist, right back from her PhD research in the early 80s on how global warming might affect world food security. Uh, Diana, can you recall, since you were kind of in on the ground floor, when, when climate change first emerged as an area of research and when you first became aware of just how great the consequences might be?
1: Well, I'd be about 150 years old if I really went back to the ground floor. Um, So we've been increasing the greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution. Uh, But I would um, really track the first interest in climate change more broadly would be the Stockholm Conference in 1972, and that's when I started to become aware about climate change as an issue. But then it sort of, you know, bubbles along. And then I think the really big news at least in North America, where I've been based for a lot of my career, was uh, what happened in 1988. There was a massive heat wave. Jim Hansen, who's a famous climate modeler, got in front of the U.S. Congress and said, we're warming the planet, I'm absolutely sure. That then produced a lot of interest amongst scientists and policymakers and, in a way, led to the formation of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that produces all those reports that tell us what's happening. But also, in 1992, to the UN Convention, on climate change which is what gives us the policy framework so I think that sort of 88 92 period was really important and then along with that the arts community writers artists do start to get interested and I would say that back um, sort of even from 1972 with the sort of flowering of the environmental movement you start to get artists being interested in the environment
0: And were they just interested in the sense of, oh, this is an important issue, or were they actually grasping here is something that is actually transforming our planet, and if we don't do something about it, we're going to be in trouble, and we as artists may have the potential to affect decision-making?
1: Well, I'm going to defer to some of the artists, I think, (laughs) on that. Um, I certainly became aware of an artistic response to climate change, but actually, you know, talking of history going back a very long way, artists have been important in relation to the climate. So even when I was an undergraduate, I remember going to the Tate and seeing an exhibition of Turner's paintings and of Constable and seeing how amazingly well they portrayed weather and climate. And the history of climate change project at the University of East Anglia, they actually used the art of previous centuries to reconstruct what the climate was like.
0: I suppose this is another point we might come back to later, where the difference between art that is deliberately focused on raising awareness of climate change and art which you can think about in the context context of climate change. Well, let's see how that perspective compares with that of Wallace Heim, who writes and teaches on performance in nature, has also been engaging with climate change for more than 20 years. At Wallace, rather than attempt to sprint through your interesting and intricate CV, it's probably better if you explain how you came to be interested in thinking about art and ecology and performance in the environment, because you were doing this really ahead of a lot of people thinking like this. Well,
2: I don't know. Well, I think I got started in it because I fell in love. Which is Good usually how you, how you start things. Um, my, my late partner had worked with Gregory Bateson in California. So ideas in the 80s about coevolution and about mixing both science, art, and all of human culture. You sort of imbue things when you're in love with someone that you do in a different way. So I think that's how it started. Then I was working at the time as a set designer and I just got much more interested in things ecological. And there was really nothing out there to see. So I thought, well, it's a bit of a thought experiment... I'll change careers, I'll learn everything I can learn about environmental thinking, and if I just kind of think that it's going to happen, it might happen. Um, It's taken some time, but it's happening.
0: (laughs) And were you specifically interested in the climate change aspects, or was it the broader, the environment, its nature?
2: I think it was was a much broader interest. Um, Certainly, uh, human relations with nature is a very big area to be considering climate change, I think, has come in as this concept which usurps or eclipses a lot of other interests that might be going on with the environment. And um, I think one gets into it in whatever way one does.
0: And you're particularly interested, I think, in taking performance arts of all kinds out of a normal context and putting them into a more everyday context. It's a bit like the Quakers, you know, trying to get away from the structures around religion and putting them into the everyday. You want to take art out out of the structures in which we perceive it.
2: Well, I don't think I'd wait for voices to come, but, <laughs> but um, it's not necessarily that I want, but that's what had to happen. I think you get to a point, I think, as a, as a practitioner, as an artist, where the conventions that are there are not good enough. So what do you do? You have to change the conventions. And I think this was what was happening in the 80s. Art was being redefined anyway. It was moving out of the gallery or the theatre or whatever, because it had to. It was also engaging much more in term- with activism. And the role of the artist was being completely redefined. And some of that work really did have very, very strong connections to people's relations with the environment or with nature.
0: And this comes full circle with climate change because and the art also. is the everyday and it's changing all our everydays. Okay, at this point I'm going to turn gracefully to choreographer Siobhan Davis. Had her own company for over 20 years, uh, along with one of the leading uh, independent dance companies in the UK. Several works are on the school syllabus and her studios in London are designed to encourage all sorts of interaction, interdisciplinary meetings and mixing. Also very involved with the Cape Farewell Arts, Science, Education, Navigation project that's Voyage to the Arctic and beyond. Siobhan, we've heard from Wallace and Diana about their very long history of involvement with this, although Diana stresses she doesn't go back the full 150 years. But does does the same go for you, or are you a rather more more recently on the climate change interest?
3: I'm a very recent apostle, <laughs> and at about the same time I was invited to by Kate Farewell to go to the Arctic, I was building a studio in London, and the idea behind the studio would be that I would find a place that was... Safe and exciting for dance artists to discover um, more delicacy, more sophistication, more methods of exploring the physical and the emotional and the thought. And then I went to the Arctic and my body was nowhere. There was no such thing as safety. I knew I wasn't going to die because I was being looked after, but there was a moment in which I felt um, my life was suspended. My umbilical cord was non-existent so there I was in tension between trying to create safety in order I mean safety in the most exciting way I hope in order to to inform an art form to move forward into its new potential while at the same time my body was um, in danger and completely unsophisticated I mean you know the costume comes down halfway down your crutch and you're, you can't move and a film director is saying, so how would you move out here, Sue? And, and I hadn't got a clue.
0: And did you feel that the reaction to this was that you had to make an artistic response rather than just a human response that you somehow were called upon to make something that commented on the situation and to turn it back into something on climate change?
3: I had to use my intuition. I would normally want to be completely thoughtful and completely accurate and none of my old tools for making work were available to me. So it was intuition that drove me to make the two pieces and I'm kind of lucky that they worked.
0: And is it different for somebody, because there are artists out there who almost style themselves as climate change artists. For one reason or another they believe that everything they do has to be channeled to, geared to responding to attracting attention to climate change. You're somebody who's taken a myriad of different influences and now you're just in there. Does that make you uncomfortable? Does that actually give you a bigger perspective?
3: I think how I make work is different because of this experience. So I can't necessarily always produce the thing, the object, which will help us transform. And I become irritated with myself and... uh, Concerned, and I keep my thought process there, but I feel the object is not what I can do. But the way of working, somehow more connectivity, somehow trying to work at an atomic level. In other words, if we think of each of us as a form of atom that is going to um, evolve and coalesce together and over a period of time move gradually towards different kinds of solutions, then I feel that's what I can work with.
0: And is, it, is, is part of that... De cocooning us, you know, because you'd been up to the mm. Arctic and you'd felt yourself. And, we, you know, when a lot of us talk about the environment and the power of the environment, we do it from the comfort of our you know, climate controlled homes and our climate controlled cityscapes. We don't realize the rawness of what it is that we're affecting. And you're trying to get some of that across to us and make us feel more, more part of it.
3: Uh, isn't there something in which we're, we're con- we, there, there is a way of reaching our periphery? So, in other words, we're quite happy in our central ground. But there is something about periphery feeling or periphery sensation or periphery understanding. And I think one of the things that the arts can do or our cultural shift can do is make us much more aware of our periphery understanding and bring that back into the center and start using that knowledge in a more mainstream way.
0: Thank you. And I should say, one of the dangers of having a choreographer on the panel is Siobhan is talking very expressively with her hands, (laughs) uh, which is not so good for a radio programme. I'm going to bring in the final member of our foursome, our token male, Dr Nigel Clark, Senior Lecturer in Human Geography at the Open University. And like most of our panel, he can claim a long association with issues around environmental change. And in the early 80s, he wrote a master's dissertation predicting that climate change would eventually bring down global capitalism. Nigel, do you stand by that or is global capitalism turned out to be a little more resilient than you previously thought?
4: Well, I think, I think it's more resilient, more devious, and I think climate change is perhaps more indiscriminate than I thought. So it's not quite been the magic bullet I was hoping for, but I'm, I'm still hoping. But the, the serious
0: point here, though, of course, is that do, do we need to take account of the, the cultural context into which all this research is appearing? We cannot pretend the fact that this is happening in a capital, largely
4: capitalist world. I think that's true, but I think the whole thing about social context and cultural context that's something that I'm supposed to specialise in because I'm a social scientist but one of the things that that really surprised me when I first went into university and became a social scientist was just the kind of limited range of of materials and ingredients really that social scientists work with they like to talk about cultural processes they like to talk about social processes and I I kind of put up with that for a, a few years and then I gradually started encountering artists who worked with this much broader kind of range of materials, of ingredients, who uh, allowed other things, whether it's kind of pigments or projections or living organisms, actually to do things, to make a difference. And I found that made a huge difference to the way that I did social science. I found an opportunity, really, to let other things have all this action and to do these things that really just talking about culture and, and social processes... Wasn't quite enough. So, in a sense, I'm supposed to be, in some ways, as a social scientist, be the sort of the voice of, of the social and the cultural. But I keep on finding that I'm really, really wanting to be the voice of a dynamic planet and of organisms that run around and take us by surprise. So, that's one of the things that I found that, that working with and talking with artists has really helped me as a social scientist. You've used that phrase dynamic planet.
0: Now, this idea that the Earth, the Earth has always changed, will always change in some ways, but there are changes that are happening to the Earth on top of this or, or annexed to this, which are anthropogenic. Do we need to reflect this in, the, in our arts and cultural interactions in terms of what's us, what's happening anyway, what's within our control, what's beyond our control?
4: Well, I think one of, the, one of the big questions is just what the planet can do by itself, even without our help, even without this kind of surcharge that we bring to it. And again, one of the things about social science is that most of the social science I'm, I'm kind of used to really works on about 300 or 400-year timescale. And increasingly, sort of conversing with, with Earth scientists, I've, I've got to get my head around things that happen on thousands or tens of thousands or even millions of year timescales. And that, I think, is the is real challenge um, you know, for all of us, for artists, for social scientists. Earth scientists have kind of got this head start on that. They've got this long time frame that for me is incredibly important. When we're thinking about the really important things that are happening right now, or in the last sort of couple of hundred years, is to think of those in the context of thousands, millions of years.
0: You're talking about the long context, you're talking about the historical view, and you're talking about things in the last couple of hundred years, but I think you do have a date a little earlier, 1755, that you think is significant.
4: Well, I think for a lot of the kind of the, the, the way that, that um, modern people thought about nature, I think this moment that the Lisbon earthquake in, in 1755, when there was an, a, kind of a, one of the most frightening things that, that Europeans had ever experienced. And I think there's an awful lot of kind of repression at that moment went on. An awful lot of thinking about what it is to be modern, thinking about what it is to be a modern subject, is also kind of repressing this, this kind of phenomenal event that went on right at the time when, when kind of a, a certain sort of modern subject was sort of new and fragile and nervous. There was this event, you know, a tsunami, an earthquake that pretty much wiped out a a major European city. And I think that in some ways we're only just coming back to that moment. We've spent the last couple of hundred years kind of repressing that. And now we're gradually getting back to it.
0: Okay, Nigel, thank you. And I did want to have just a couple of questions from each in a row just to establish uh, where everybody's coming from this. But since the focus here is the history of how arts and culture have engaged with climate change... It'll be good to get everyone's overview before we go much further. So this is a question for each of you: How much of a role do you think culture really has played in the evolution of popular understanding of this issue? And I stress popular understanding. And how much impact do you think it's had on politicians, policymakers, and others with the, with the power to make a difference? Uh, Diana, I'll start with you.
1: Well, I think not much yet to be honest, Um, particularly if I think of um, the American public, the one that I engage at the moment, but also European publics. I think that their framing of climate change is so deeply informed by the media and the popular media, not what I think of as the sort of artistic media, that it's, it's hard to see broadly in politics and in individual human behavior yet the influence of art and culture and even the science that, people know in relation to global warming is really pretty minuscule in terms of what's actually informing their understanding of the climate change issue or they're willing to respond to it. But I think that there are are pockets of inspiration, and I've certainly seen that over the last five years in my own engagement with the arts community. So that there are moments where I do see hundreds and thousands of people thousands of people inspired by art to think more deeply about the problem of climate change. But when I actually think about the magnitude of the solution, the politicians that must make decisions, the millions of individuals that must change their behavior, i don 't sense that culture and the arts has really reached them yet.
0: Right. There's lots of, there's not there 's a shortage of it it 's just not as effective as it might be diana i 'm sorry Wallace. <laughs>
2: Well, there's, there's part of me that wants to say I think that's the wrong question.
0: Then say it. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> <you> know,
2: <laughs> that, um, yes, of course it's the right question. You, of course you want arts to, to influence everything and all of that. But, but in a sense, it's asking for a very instrumental view of the arts. And I think if you start with that premise, you're going to get a very different kind of art and culture response to it you know you're going to ask for education you're going to ask for impacts you're going to ask for all those things that policymakers can hold on to and i'd rather give policymakers something they can't hold on to
0: right so we've got to we mustn't just kind of get fixated on the kind of didactic aspects it's things that may not even you might not even be aware that they're dealing with this but will have some influence or some things that actually just become part of the well, broader culture and encourage us to think in these lines
2: well, I, I just want to keep sort of subtlety and nuance and complexity in there i don't i, I don't necessarily I think we've learned that messages doesn't don't work we've you know we've we've learned all that I think as a tangent to to that a little bit I think what's interesting is that some artists are now starting to actually work within the legal system or work within the judicial system or or directly within the political system and I find that expansion of where artists can work very very interesting as well as just what you know what is presented to the public so it's a, a rather more subversive way of working.
0: Siobhan, do you want to take this on further? Because there is, obviously, I have been rightly reprimanded for the notion that that, that art art that is deliberately setting out to change things is only a tiny subset of what's available. But do we need to actually have some kind of criteria to look at cultural responses to climate change and think about whether they're making a difference? Or is it just perfectly okay if there's a cultural response and it doesn't affect anyone at all?
3: Well, the word is urgency. So Mm. we're under pressure and I suppose maybe being under pressure, is a complexity for us. So I love that idea that we might need a more nuanced or a more complex response. There's one area where I'm I'm not convinced about this, but I'm trying to think about it, is um, the gaps between disciplines, either different artistic disciplines or between uh, the judicial or between the science and the arts. And if we're not too um, overly directed... So, in other words, the science must meet the artist and they must make something. The tension between the exactitude of those two forms and what happens in the gap between them makes me feel that that's the energy plane that we might be able to work on more, but we're not doing it yet, and the urgency requires that we do.
0: Right, I'm paraphrasing, but I think there's a, there's a, a Nobel Prize-winning cyberneticist, Norbert Wiener, and he said the most, all the most interesting developments in science come in the no-man's land yes. between disciplines, and we need this same attitude to expand further.
4: Nigel? I think artists had a, a, had a huge impact, but almost sort of incidentally, I want to go back to kind of the earlier in the 20th century when really what artists did was a whole lot of work kind of breaking boundaries, opening up, working within limits, breaking out of limits. And I think that that then sort of fed eventually into kind of consumer culture, helped turn us into the sort of people we became in the second half of the 20th century, and and we are the sort of people that then confronted the climate change message. So I think in all sorts of ways, the arts, the the kind of the avant-garde arts, prepared us for climate change, but one of the things that then happened when environmental change became a problem was that there was a lot of, early on, there was a lot of kind of talk about limits to growth, about restrictions, about belt tightening, about narrowing horizons, In a lot of ways, the arts already in the 20th century had prepared us not to welcome those things. So we were kind of all geared up for something else. And then along came the the environmental kind of message about restriction, limits, belt tightening, and we kind of didn't really want to hear it. And I think it's it's taken a long time for climate change to, to bring about a new message that isn't about restriction and limits. It's about things we can't know and unpredictable things. And then I think the arts and, and the sciences have, have kind of converged again, and they're doing it now. They're, they're coming together after the sort of earlier period of kind of being drawing apart. Siobhan,
0: from what we've said here, do we need to actually, when we're thinking about these arts, think about climate change differently from any of the other of the subjects that you might have picked up on in a, in a previous piece of choreography? Does it have its own rules? Does it have its own challenges? Is it it different to other things as a subject matter because of the magnitude, the intangibility, the time shifts that are involved in dealing with it?
3: I wonder if it's that the human being is obviously central to climate change, but when we first start to think about it, do we think about it in terms of place and landscape? So then where is the human being part of the romance of it rather than the devil of it. So, if we look at somebody like Bob Dylan, okay. So, I brought up with Bob Dylan and anti-war stuff, and yet, war, sex, death have romance in them. If, if I'm using that word rather carefully, yeah. but it's a it's a human practice um, and a human problem practice. And then suddenly, you've got place, and you've got vast sense of place, and where do we fit in? And I think that's the that's the dilemma for me as an artist is suddenly it feels very small if i make something and i put a human being in a context whereas the subject is vast so for me it's the tension between the enormity and the single figure and that i'm finding that hard
0: Strangely, echoing the, the Bob Dylan, I remember one of the Cape Farewell voyages uh, on the 2008 voyage, Martha Wainwright mm. saying she felt that was you know, somebody needed to write the climate change protest song, and she was going to try and write it. But yes, what she did. Which she, which she, well, she had a, certainly had a go. Um, um, <laughs> 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 well, well, listen, di- well, listen, di- um, in, in terms of a kind of really huge popular response, I suppose that a landmark for some people, for better or for worse, would be the 2004 film the day after tomorrow. In fact, it certainly got to a lot of people, but I also remember a lot of climate scientists in the UK scrabbling to say, look, the climate science here is all over the place, this is all hopelessly exaggerated, at the same time as the government's chief scientific advisor, Sir David King, said, look, I'll endorse this film on condition we have screenings at which there are scientists present who can give people the actual facts is this a better way forward is to accept that the art may sometimes have to be compromised in order to reach a wide audience but you can then get to the science from it
3: Thank you.
1: The Day After Tomorrow, I think, was actually more of a blip on the radar. I, I would say that Inconvenient Truth is far more important than Al Gore's film, even though it was you know, quite deeply boring in places. Um, but you know, For me, actually, the, the most powerful moment in Inconvenient Truth was at the end, the song, is what made me weep. Um, and but, I mean, Day After Tomorrow, yes. I mean, the problem for us was the science was sort of impossible and it was over-dramatised. I, um, I don't think the great climate change movie has yet been made. Um, but I think that... Can it be are... made? Yes, of course it can. I mean, there have been movies made on other powerful social factors that that, that change things. So I I think that the film has not yet um, been made, and it's like people say, well, you know, the climate change, Guernica hasn't been made. But whether one piece of art can change things. But um, I did want to mention something else that I, I was thinking about, so I hear other people talking. And it's because I do a lot of my work on how climate change will affect the developing world and the poor and you know the sort of groups that um, Oxfam is concerned about. And I, I just thought, well, is there anything going on there in terms of connecting art and culture, in terms of those millions of people who are going to be affected by climate change? And the other issue that I'm not sure that scientists and artists are addressing together is is the way in which sort of the climate change issue has become commodified you know it's all being solved through the market and carbon trading and all of those sorts of things and that's sort of taken it away from these deeply human responses that maybe scientists artists can have together. And of course
0: the green bashing and greenwashing that comes with being made into the centre of the place. Yeah.
1: But I'm definitely worried about the rest of the world and what is the conversation that we're having between science and art really mean in terms of of the millions who are going to be affected by climate change and don't
0: have the resources to cope with it. Wallace how important is it to actually reach that, that mass audience through cultural artistic responses or is it better just to be thinking about well let's get to the policy makers let's get to the 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 industry leaders if we can if you get one of them to come to a puppet show that happens to be about climate no i'm serious that happens to be about climate science that makes them think differently and they can make a different decision isn't that better than something that vaguely permeates the consciousness of millions of people when they go and see avatar for half an hour after the movie
2: well i think it might not be the right question
0: (laughs) that's all right i'm spotting a pattern here it's fine
2: we're getting along fine um I, I don't say, I, w- I wouldn't put it as either or. Mm. And I think something that, that very much needs to happen is with all these sort of manifestations of, of culture and climate change. I think we don't really have very strong critical frameworks for looking at each of them within the context in which they happen. So I think it's really quite unfair to compare Day After Tomorrow or um, Age of Stupid or something with the puppet show. They're doing different things. Uh, and I wouldn't want any of them not to be done. I think that under, underneath that is also a question of does the science have to be right in order for this to be to be good and to be working? Uh, you know, I'd, I'm kind of hesitating on answering that because I think there's so many other things that have to be right too. I think there's a lot of thinking that can be done about, for example, the ethical quality of a lot of these things. And in a lot of the, and the a political analysis of them as well as just whether or not they got the science right. And I think one area that slightly touched on with Diana is that hasn't really been very, very well explored is much more nuanced emotional qualities in these works. So you get the big blockbusters, but the emotional quality is really banal. So for me, that's, as, that's as, probably as hard as saying, well, the science isn't right. So that would be my criticism of that.
0: Dorian, no, I'm, I'm yeah. using false di- dichotomies as a pr- provocation. Okay. It's working nicely. So,
4: say <laughs> <laughs> so something just between the, the the day after tomorrow, and I, I think Siobhan's point about kind of romance. Because mm-hmm. for me, one of the one of the things that, that that movie did do was to kind of bring in that whole story of, of abrupt climate change. Mm-hmm. It brought it in in a pretty dodgy, dubious way, but it still put it on the agenda. And I thought that there was that amazing image of the Earth from space, and suddenly it's, it's kind of, you know, fully glaciated, and, and what that did was we'd had years and years and years of that kind of whole Earth image from space, which was really a kind of a static image, it, it did some wonderful things, but it really gave us a very static Earth, and one, one image that, that the day after tomorrow brought us was this suddenly a different perspective, which was, you know, a glaciated Earth, that, that whole Earth had, had kind of shifted, okay, it shifted a little bit too quickly, it shifted overnight, which was a little bit exaggerated. But what we have found out, um, or we have been finding out for the last decade or so, is that, in fact, climate change can happen very, very rapidly. It can happen in a lifetime. So in some respects, the film was an exaggeration, but it wasn't way, way, way off. Um, And many people, human beings, you know, hominids, have lived through those very, very rapid changes in the past. So I'm just just kind of thinking of, of, of Siobhan's kind of demand for a... To kind of bring it down to a kind of personal level and we think that, that a lot of our ancestors our, our deep ancestors way back in the past um, who were probably quite small kind of uh, you know bands of hominids bands of humans actually had to live through abrupt climate change they had to make it through these episodes of very very sudden climate change so, and they were just small groups and if it wasn't for them making it through again and again and again making it through these episodes of abrupt climate change none of us would be here. And it's actually kind of fairly unlikely that, that we made it through all those. So, in some respects, the fact that, that we're all here is, is kind of, um, you know, it's fairly unlikely.
0: But this is one of the, one of the things, that the challenge is to get across with this, isn't it, is that climate change is not unnatural something that affects a species on a remarkable scale is not unnatural what we're after in some cases is a form of special pleading we want to actually be able to continue with our lifestyles as much as possible as we have in the past with the minimal change while nevertheless we are transforming our planet and our planet is making it impossible to do so so we're actually trying to come up with something impossible aren't we But, but isn't I mean
1: it's different because this is an ethical question now because we are creating this change which we didn't in the past and in creating it we have to take more responsibility than just reacting and also by creating it some people are much more vulnerable than others including many people that didn't cause it so I think it's, it's whilst the experience of the past may give us some guidelines about how to adapt and how we might survive I think that the sort of the deeper ethical emotional issue is that this is something we created we can't sort of blame it on outside forces Mm.
0: how closely when we're talking about responses and and communicating the sort of things you're talking about how closely do we need to get down to the nitty-gritty of the science does it need to be is it broad brush or is it quite important that in some areas in some cases uh, scientists artists work closely together
1: I think we need to, in some cases, get down to the nitty-gritty. I'll pick two of the popular solutions. One is carbon offsetting, and the other is geoengineering, both of which we can get terribly wrong and both of which I think both communities have, could have something to think and say about, whether it's uh, artists worried about flying around the world or whether they should offset their flights, or whether it's engaging with artists to imagine a future where we geoengineer the planet in order to cope with climate change. And that's sort of one of the new areas that I actually think would be worth having a conversation about, because we may get to the point we're not gonna do anything to reduce emissions, so we've got to now start you know, putting gases into... sulfur dioxide into space. What are the impacts of that? What's the meaning of that?
0: Right. So so
3: artists... The the art movement can help change, can they? Um, Human understanding and human empathy and human engagement. So it may not be that we can only work because of what science is telling us. Science is telling us something and we have to be open to receive it. And I feel that's what an art knowledge can do is change or adapt some kind of receivership and by being opened and receiving it then we may be able to alter how we respond to what's happening In its broadest us. sense
0: the arts help us define who we are as humans and who we are as humans will decide how we respond to all these various situations. What about something that also within Diana's point there she was talking about artists in terms of their emissions their sustainability of the works they do independent of what the subject is how those works are constructed, is that an important part of this? That actually thinking about, are we making sustainable art? Are we doing things in a carbon-efficient way? Or is it, in the end, what ends up being presented to the audience of all paramount?
3: got to be both. I mean, um, c- certainly, if I can't produce the object, then how I'm making it or how I'm not trying to expend energy is the thing I can do so then I'm going to try and work on that, or how I can make connectivities that I might not have done before, but now my, my community seems so much larger and so much more exciting because I've, I've, thought, um, I've tried to think horizontally rather than hierarchically. And if you're thinking hierarchically, then you're trying, maybe you're always trying to make the object, but if you're thinking horizontally, then you're trying to link with, very, with different people and different practices And that has felt, to me, more inventive. Because I can
0: certainly think of examples of people I know who have certainly engaged with this from a rock band touring in a Mm. carbon-neutral way, even though there might be nothing in any of the songs that's about that, and the songs might be advocating all sorts of wild and crazy lifestyles, but they'll pick up on, oh, okay, it is possible to do these things. It's
3: practical. And so possibly some people's response can be really practical. Well, that's fantastic.
0: Nigel do we we have to in the end think about, we've touched on this already but the the human induced versus the non-human induced or is that because for for a lot of people out there in the general public the big story is simply there is climate change, it is a bad thing it is to a certain extent our responsibility, there are things we can do to offset it, there are things we can do to mitigate it, the idea of how much is us and how much isn't is is, is almost taken out of the mix.
4: I think being able to to speak about what we've done and what the planet does itself in the same breath. We have to, to, to not think about it as an either-or thing. I think that the whole sense that the reason why we can have such a massive impact on the planet is because, in a sense, it's kind of precarious. Its, it's climate systems are poised. And if they weren't poised and precarious, if they weren't capable of tipping and shifting, then we wouldn't be able to have the impact we, we have on the planet. So it's that sense of being able to think the two... At the same time, together, and I think that, that that kind of comes back to to Diana's point about about responsibility. And I'm thinking particularly about the the responsibility that that artists have and the responsibility that that policy makers have. And I think, in a sense, they they are different kinds of responsibility because I think one of the things that that artists do they part of their response to the world is to experiment with materials, to experiment with different ways of bringing things together. But they tend it's very hard to, to know what the ultimate outcome is. And I think artists tend to work experimenting with things without really having to know what the ultimate outcome is. So it's an open-ended process. Whereas policymakers, in particular kind of have this responsibility where they really have to deal with you know, millions of lives... And they really have to have a sense of what the outcomes or the results of the policies they're doing, uh, they're, they're dealing with. And I think that, that there's a different sense of responsibility. And it's, it's difficult to talk between art and policymaking because artists have this open-ended sense, whereas policymakers are kind of responsible by virtue of, of the jobs they do to really kind of have a sense of the actual impacts of, of the policies they're making Siobhan,
0: there's a lot of vigorous nodding
4: no, there. Um,
3: no, they
0: were just vigorous nodding. <laughs> <laughs> we, well, we are nearly out of time for this, but I do want to come back to a couple of big overview themes. We, we, we keep hearing, and plenty of people keep emphasising, that the climate change has no single cause, there's no single solution. Uh, do we need to take the same approach with artistic responses? It's all, by all means, by any means, direct didactic subtle intangible all of these alongside each other are what we need or should we or should we attempt to focus our attentions on particular areas where we seem to gain most ground and since i know this will chime most with you wallace i'll ask it you first
2: (laughs) well i think i i wouldn't want to say that there had to be any prescriptive limit on what could be done i don't see the point of that i think that pretty well sums it up i think there's infinite ways of expressing things there's infinite room for redeveloping and reimagining reimagining and coming up with new forms of art
0: and they're all of equal merit
2: well that's where where I think again quite strong critical frameworks come in because the in a way we're talking about okay well here's art and science well there's a lot of other people involved as well it's not just artists and scientists and in developing I suppose these critical frameworks if you want to call it that it's a way of not just focusing on the art, but focusing on the fact that the artwork is also made in its relation with its audience. It's not just the object, it's the relation that it creates within the public realm. And I think there's a, a much more scope for thinking about that as well as just thinking about what, you know, what that particular artwork was. Where does it fit? How does it work? Who does it, who does it speak to? And each form is going to come up with
1: something different.
0: Okay. Uh-huh.
1: I think that there's a parallel here in that whilst it's good to have a diversity of responses... The research that I've done looking at uh, how everybody else is responding to climate change, cities, states, individuals, suggests that yes, you want a lot of different actions, but actually networks make a massive difference. So I think my suggestion is however diverse the artistic response is, there's powers at power of networks to link people together, to share best practices, to inspire each other and to influence policy and in the public. So I think that the individuals linked into networks is what could make
4: a difference. Nigel? Um, I think yeah, that, that whole thing about, about networking to transform is incredibly important but I still want to come back to the, the kind of the unknowingness of, of doing art. I mean I come from a part of the world where for various often for aesthetic reasons an awful lot of organisms were introduced to help you know transform the landscape and some of these introduced organisms completely transformed entire continents Rabbits got let loose and look what they did to Australia and New Zealand. They completely transformed the landscape. And you know, part of that introduction was actually you know, quite quite aesthetic. And I think that there's a sense in which a lot of aesthetic practices we just do not know where they're going to go and what they're going to lead to. And and just thinking about geoengineering, who knows that there's not going to be a kind of coming together of, of artists, scientists, policymakers to start really experimenting with in an aesthetic and a scientific sense with what the earth can do. We don't know that that may be the sort of art and science collaboration that happens in the future. This is
0: an argument effectively for kind of blue skies arts, the same as blue skies science. You should be allowed to have well, arts which don't have a defined goal. Yeah,
4: I mean a lot of artists have always wanted to transform the world and I'm not suggesting that, that geoengineering is the way to go but it's it's there on the agenda and, and I'm just not sure where... Art and science and social science and policy making is going to converge in the next 20 or 30 years, but it's, it's going to be interesting.
3: We could join together to paint the roofs white. OK,
4: <laughs> that, <laughs> that's a start, wait, but wait till the end of the programme. Uh, Siobhan?
3: I think it's something to do with the language in which what we are doing is made common to a larger group of people. So I think we need more commentary. I think there needs to be more people who are looking at this and making comment on it and giving language to people who might not be involved in the arts and science a way of feeling included in this.
0: And finally, briefly, one cruel question, but I wanted to give it your best shot. If there is one lesson from the history of cultural responses to climate change that can usefully inform what we do now and in the future, what is that lesson? Nigel.
4: Well, I would say that an awful lot of culture going back over tens, hundreds of thousands of years is in fact already a response to climate change. It's how we got through climate change in the first place. So I think maybe the the massive lesson of of the last decade or so is learning just how sort of uncertain the planet can be. And we've responded before and we're going to have to respond again quite quickly, I think. Shavu. I'm not quite sure if this is a cultural response. I've been looking at
3: um, how the brain works. There have been studies on neurological pathways... And we have quick, hard drives to things like anger and jealousy and sex and territory. But we do have empathy and compassion and thought and feeling within us, and we don't expose ourselves to that. So there has been this practice, and I'm wondering if we can use that practice to develop our thinking and our responses in a different way.
0: So maybe even to use the scientific understanding for the the generation of art forms. Yes. Wallace?
2: Well, I, I'm not sure it's a lesson from history, but it's, it's an idea from history. And that's uh, Aristotle came up with the idea of phronesis, which is a kind of an ethical knowledge in a very particular situation, and it's knowing what that situation calls for in terms of right action when you don't know what right action would be, when you've got no idea, there's no beliefs, there's no principles, there's no precedent. So it's a, it's a description of how you respond in that situation, which Aristotle went on at at great length about. And what it is, it's it's a reason that shows itself in the
1: ability to improvise.
0: We did say historical. We've gone right back to Aristotle. Diana?
1: I think it's probably a lesson about seizing the moment. Um, When I get desperate about responding to climate change, I think it's going to take disasters to change it, which I don't want to happen, but I think they will happen. And at that point, there are ways in which we can respond that could change things, whether we're artists or scientists, and so it, it's really being ready for those moments that will happen over the next 20 years So for we all this incredible change.
0: human ability to see into the future before it gets here, we have to wait for it to actually whack us before we really respond properly. I,
1: I suppose that's where I'm at right now.
0: Okay, well fair enough. I did say that was a cruel final question, uh, but uh, thank you for at least attempting it. Thank you for everything we've heard from our panel. Uh, environmental science, social scientist, Professor Diana Liverman, geographer Dr. Nigel Clark, choreographer Siobhan Davis and hard to labeler Wallace Heim. I hope this, one of four mediating change discussions that are being recorded, has uh, proved a stimulating listening as it has been hosting. The other three are Publix, which looks at popular culture and mass media and considers the origins, outcomes and all too frequent absence of concern. Anatomy, which attempts to plot the range of cultural responses to climate change from polemic to experiment and to at least sketchily categorise this broad spectrum of responses. And Futures, which considers the way that culture, politics and science interact as we try to anticipate and respond to climate scenarios.